Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today we are rewinding back to August the 17th, 2010, episode 494, Urban and Suburban Homesteading. Um, you know, I did this episode because at this point in time, we were beginning to talk more and more about moving to our homestead in Arkansas, which we did for about two years before deciding to come back to Texas and finding you know, our homestead here, which is a three-acre homestead and a fairly sizable piece of land. Um, weeks go by, and there are places on this property that I never see, let alone step on, even with it only being three acres. But I know that about 70% of my audience are people that live in standard suburban and urban housing. Um, You know, some of them are apartment dwellers, etc., but most of the people that have a, a piece of property of their own, they're living on somewhere between, you know, a, a, a tenth or even a twentieth of an acre up to about a quarter to a half of an acre. You know, if you have a corner lot or a cul-de-sac lot or something like that, maybe you get closer to that 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 kind of an acre Uh, half acre lot size, but generally speaking, live in the suburbs and and are not going to be out grazing cattle and and doing other things like that. And because of that, I I try to every once in a while kind of back the card up, so to speak, to the average American backyard and go, look, here's all these things you could be doing that people think. Well, because I hear all the time, well, one day when I get some land, we're going to do all this stuff. And, and I look at what. The opportunities are in suburban America, and they're huge. They're huge. In some ways, there's some real advantages to small property management, and that is that since everything, you look out your door, and there it all is. You don't forget about stuff. You know, you don't have to walk real far to get to an area. Good, smart, concise design, thinking about what you want from your property. And when it comes to soil management, the less soil you're managing, the more intense you can manage it, the more fertility you can get. The most intensive management of soil, even though I'm not a huge fan of the gardening method as a whole, is square foot gardening. Because in square foot gardening, I've just finished growing something in this one square foot. And even though something's growing all around it, Before I plant into again, I'm going to compost it. I'm going to mulch it. I'm going to turn it over. I'm going to add some amendment to it. I'm going to manage this one square foot of soil. And while I'm not a huge fan of the overall methodology, if you look at someone that's doing it religiously, they always get good production. And if you were to take someone that's been doing square foot gardening and doing it the way they're supposed to for a couple of years, and you analyze that soil, it's full of microorganisms. It's everything that we're looking for. So as we scale back, we can put more time into all the things we're doing and we can get more productivity out of it. I'll put it to you this way. I had a garden in Arlington that had eight 32-square-foot beds. And I got a lot out of it. And I got more out of it than I've got out of this property from an annual production standpoint until I started doing aquaponics. Even with having so much more land available. Because that's what I had, that's what I focused on, that's what I worked on. And when we moved to that property, it's black gumbo clay. That was the soil. 
And we did, you know, some raised beds, and we brought the soil profile up about six inches. But in the end, you're still growing in black gumbo clay. And after five years of doing that, you could have gone out to one of my garden beds and stuck your hand down in it up to your elbow at the worst time of the year. And it was just crumbly, structured, black, beautiful soil. The type of soil that people that don't even know anything. and that's something, See, that's why I think intrinsically we are a horticultural species. You take someone who doesn't know nothing about gardening, and you show them good, dark, rich soil, and they go, oh. It's like, oh. like Something like flips in their brain, like, oh, that's good. I know that's good. I can look at it, and I can see that that's, that's good. I mean, you talk about a person, when you, you go to a grocery store and hand them a bunch of cilantro, they go, what is this? Is it parsley? I don't know what this is. And still, when you show them good soil, they're like, wow. And there's so many advantages to the suburban space. And that's what this episode's all about. Again, we're rewinding about, oh, just a little less than uh, 10 years here. I'm sorry, 8 years here. And uh, those of you that are on the small-scale spaces, this episode's for you. And those on the bigger uh, spaces, this is your zone one. This is what, like, if you move into a probably at 25 acres, you do this stuff first. You set up systems that feed the property, that feed the livestock, that feed the people, that give you immediate and long-term gratification, that are close. You step out the door, you design that square, first square foot. You do that, and then the larger landscape gets a lot easier to manage. With that, let's go ahead and rewind back. August 17th, 2010, episode 494, Urban and Suburban Homesteading. And as always, this show, uh, these uh, Rewind episodes are not commercial. Uh, there's no commercial content in them. But if you want to help support us, the easy way to do that, whenever you're going to shop online, just visit tspaz.com first, T-S-P-A-Z.com first. And uh, we're getting through the end of this Rewind series. We'll be back with you soon next week on a Monday. But we've got a couple more coming before that happens. They gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man fuels the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 494. Man, we're close to episode 500. And uh, today's episode is going to be about suburban and urban homesteading. Uh, I think I'll probably do tomorrow's show on suburban and urban prepping, kind of the things that you need to think about with your preps that are maybe a little bit different for people in the city and the big towns and the suburbs than uh, for people that maybe are out in that area that you know most of the people that live in those cities and big towns would love to have as their bug out location. You're kind of already in a... I don't know, an opportune spot. I hear from people that are kind of in remote areas going, where do I go if something goes wrong? I'm like, dude, you're in a great spot. So we're going to talk about people today that maybe aren't in that great spot for homesteading. At least they don't think they are. 
And I decided to do this show because I've looked at the demographics of the audience, and you'd be surprised what the Internet knows about you folks. And uh, when I look at sites like the, the data from Compete, I can tell you that over 70% of this audience, and it's actually a lot over 70%, I'm hedging at 70%, lives in major cities, towns, suburbs, things like that. I also know from the emails that I get that a huge quantity of you guys would like to move somewhere else. You'd like five acres, ten acres, forty acres, somewhere out in the country. And I think that's a dream for a lot of Americans, not just preppers, not just homesteaders. I think a lot of people, uh, after a few years of, you know, kidding themselves with suburbia, decide, you know, I'd really like a place where I could stretch out a little bit. Where if I, uh, if I spit really hard out of one of my windows, I wouldn't hit my neighbor's house, you know. So that's kind of a dream for a lot of people, but then a lot of people are kind of tied to where they live right now for a variety of reasons. Some uh, have debt they haven't worked away yet, and they haven't put up enough savings to make the move, and for that period of time, until they do, they have to work the good-paying job that they're blessed to have right now. Some have family members that they, they don't want to move with them and or can't move with them, and you know maybe aging parents that you're taking care of for the time being, or uh, kids that you don't want to uproot from school and, and totally change their lives before they graduate and things like that, and you're, you're deferring it. And some people just want to stay put, and but they still love that that homestead type environment, and they wish they could have it. Well, I thought today we would talk about how to bring a little bit of that to the urban and suburban area. Before we do that, though. Uh, again, like I said in the beginning, I want to talk about suburban and urban homesteading today. And the big reason I wanted to do that is because of how many people I know out there that live in large cities, large towns, right in the middle of the suburbs, things like that. Um, a lot of you guys do. In fact, I'd say, them again, over 70% based on the compete data live in what I would consider large, suburban, and above. And... So you're sitting there in, you know, a place like I am in Arlington, Texas, or, you know, Jacksonville, Florida, Atlanta, Georgia, Los Angeles, California, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, PA, uh, you know, uh, you know, any of these places, Buffalo, New York, Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and any of the, you know, large towns, large cities in between, top 200 cities in, in the United States. It's amazing what happens to the population between the two of them. Number 200 is, is looks like a really small podunk town to the person from L.A., but it's still quite sizable, and people live the same way as far as the way suburbs are done and the way houses are stacked on top of each other. And you want to turn your home into a homestead. You'd say, I can't leave yet, or I don't want to leave yet, or circumstances keep me from leaving yet. And because of that, I want to bring a little bit of it here. Well, if we're going to do that, the first thing we have to do, and for some of the newer listeners, you may have never heard it put this way before, is determine what the hell a homestead is. What makes a house a homestead? When we think of a homestead, we generally think way back, you know, 150 years ago to the, the early American pioneers that went out in the West, uh, you know, maybe right before and right after the Civil War and, and even during it. And, you know, went out there and carved something out of the land and, and made something out of nothing. Went out and got 40 acres and a mule and made it happen. And that is homesteading. I mean, that's a traditional uh, definition of homesteading. And there's a lot of things we can learn from those people about what they did and what worked and what didn't work. But in some ways, we have a big advantage today. We have 
and, and in some ways they had a big advantage. There's not really anywhere left where you can just go out and mark off 40 acres and claim it. Uh, or, you know, claim it for the price, even inflation adjusted, that they were able to do back then because the government needed the nation settled back then, right? So there was huge incentives to get people to go do this because it was dangerous. So the advantage that they had is that the land was available. That's kind of where it ends, though, because they didn't have modern conveniences, modern transportation. If you went out and homesteaded somewhere in the middle of Nebraska, you know, you're on your own. And there's still places out there where you're pretty much on your own. Whereas today, we can go out and, and you know, do this stuff anywhere from a small backyard to 40 acres, but we have a Walmart down the road. We have running water. We have electricity. We have all the modern conveniences. Now, we do prepare for those things to fail, but I think most of us still utilize them while they're available. You know, people that say, well, that stuff could all fail. Well, you have a car, right? You know, do you have air conditioning in your home? And most people do. So we have those advantages to build up not only something that's very livable, But to use those advantages to create redundancies in case there's a failure, that's part of the prepping that we'll save for tomorrow. But when it comes to a homestead, I have a very simplified definition of a homestead. To me, a house is something into which you put money. It's what most Americans have. They, they have a, what they call their home, but they don't own it. It owns them. They owe more on it than they're worth. They put 28 to 35% of their income just into the cost of owning their home. That doesn't include energy and heating and, and all the other things that go into to home ownership, water bills, sewer bills, all that. That's just mortgage and taxes, right? 28 to 34% national average. So that means, I want you to think about what, what, what 30% means. For every 10 hours a person spends in a job they don't like, three hours are just so the house will stand there and they can go home and go inside the door. That's a home, that's a house, that's, quote, the American dream. But it is a consumer. It consumes your resources at a higher level than it provides back to you. What most people's homes provide for them are bragging rights, a lawn, a place to sleep at night, and hopefully, hopefully, an equity investment. And that's it. To make the transformation from home to homestead, it's not something that everybody can just do overnight because if you're upside down in a mortgage and things like that, it takes time to work yourself out of a hole like that. But the, the simplified definition is you turn a home into a homestead when you turn your house from a consumer into a producer. When you can make your house produce for you versus take from you, you have a homestead in my opinion. So everything that I'm going to give you today is going to be angled toward what can we do to take the average American house and make it consume less or make it produce more. So that, I believe, is why homesteading makes sense for everyone. I think this is something every American should be doing. And if we had more people that took this attitude, took this output, uh, or took this, the, the, this concept and said, I'm not going to necessarily do what Jack Spierko says, but the overriding concept of making my house produce for me living within my means, controlling my home's consumption, improving my home's efficiency, improving my home's output, we'd have a lot less trouble. We'd have a lot less people defaulting on mortgages. We wouldn't have had the housing bubble. People that think this way don't buy houses with the thought of, well, I really can't afford it, but I can sort of afford it, and the house's value will just go up anyway. They don't think that way. 
And you think about the equity, the underlying equity in the home, but not in a in a in a in a pure investor uh, greedy way. And I think a lot of what caused problems in our housing sector was greed. There, there's two types of greed. There's the the greed of I want something and I, I don't want to let go of it, and that's what most people think. A greedy guy has a bunch of money holding on to it. I don't want to share my money. But the greed that burns you is the burden, you know, the one that we learn not to follow. The burden of hand is worth more than a bush. They want what others have, and they think it's running away from them. That's what caused the housing bubble. The houses kept going up in price, and if I don't buy now, it'll cost more tomorrow. And real estate agents and the loan brokers all got on top of that and beat that drum because everybody was making money for a while. It was like a gold rush, and there can only be one result. If you're thinking the way that we're talking about today, you don't play that game. You just don't. When everybody's freaking out, going, oh, it's going to keep going up, eh, fine, let it go. I'll go somewhere else, I'll buy something else, or I'll wait until you guys all screw this up, and I'll pick what I want when you know when the death comes. And, and a lot of people did that. They bought in the last couple of years with the mindset of, I'm going to turn this into a homestead. So the reason I think this should make sense for everyone out there is because it's in your best interest to do it. And one of the things I learned from doing this show right from the beginning was I needed to put things in a context where you could look at it and go, I'm better off if I do that. That's just so important. So if we're going to do a homestead in the city or the country or anywhere, whether it's a fourth of an acre or 40 acres, we need to first determine what we have to work with. So your first step is to assess what you have. To go out and look, and I think a lot of people that own, you know, a tenth of an acre is a typical suburban lot, 0.2 acres, 0.25, a third. In some places you're lucky and a typical lot's a half. And it's usually something in between that 0.1 and 0.5 acres. I think a lot of people that have a little piece of land like that, they go out and they look and they have this little square of land. And they stand there and they go, I don't need to walk my land, I don't need to assess my land. There it is, it's a square. It's a small square. By the time I look at the, the easement for the utilities and everything, I couldn't even put a pool in this damn thing if I want to because it would be sitting on top of the electrical lines and I need a zoning variance and I'm not going to get And I mean, come on, I throw the, the ball for the dog and he runs into the fence. There it is. That's it. What do you mean walk it? I mean walk it. Assess it. Understand it. Most people don't understand their property. Where's the sun rise? And this is something you need to you need to sketch your property. Even if it's just a little square on a piece of paper. Where does the sun rise and set on your property? What shadows are created by fencing, other homes, trees? What way does wind flow on your property in the summer and in the winter? These are what we call energy flows. You need to understand energy flow on your property if you're going to maximize it. It's a permaculture principle. And what I mean by that is there are energy flows in nature. Wind is an energy flow. Solar radiation is an energy flow. Shade is something that blocks and disrupts the energy flow of solar radiation. A fence is an object that blocks the energy flow of wind energy. And anything else we can think of that nature does that causes an action that creates work. Work is simply, the definition of work means force that moves something. So wind obviously moves something. Solar radiation, we don't see the movement, but there's movement. There's movement of photons through the air. All right? And it creates heat. There's work. So anything that creates work uh, in a natural state is a natural energy flow. 
And we need to assess what's blocking the energy and what's allowing the energy in. Where does the energy go? And this is not some metaphysical crap, right? This is physics, right? This is physics we're talking about here when I say energy. Because I know some people, when they see, hear energy, you know, they're into energy healing and you like that or you think it's nonsense. And either side of that, let it go because it's not what this is about, right? It's about real-world energy flow. So we look at that energy flow. And then we ask ourselves in a place where the solar radiation hits the ground for eight hours a day. Based on what we want that area to do for us, do we want to allow that energy to continue to flow in? Is there shade that could be, that could be removed that would increase the duration of solar radiation? Or is it too much and do we want to filter it out? The whole process is, where are my energy flows and where do I wish to increase or decrease them based on what I want the property to do? If you walk even a postage stamp lot with that in your mind, you will see your property through completely new eyes. You'll start to realize things like, hey, this fence gets hit with sun all day long. This yard's too small for typical trees. But I could build a wire trellis along this really long fence of 100 feet, which a lot of people have that 100-foot fence, baked in the sun all day. And in front of that fence, I could espalar... Uh, apples or peaches or any type of fruit tree, pomegranates, citrus, whatever I want. Now, what, what espalier, espalier, however you want to say it, it's a French word, and I don't like French, right? I don't like speaking French. Uh, what it, that actually is is simply growing a tree that normally grows in a big three-dimensional shape down into a two-dimensional shape. So we take our fruit trees and we train them along a wall. So they grow almost in the shape of like a grapevine. And you realize, I could use that fence for this. That's just one idea. And all of a sudden, this space that just seems useless to you, it just seems like something you could never really make a go of. If I plant big old trees over here, they're going to grow over the fence. I'm going to have to trim them. They're going to drop fruit on my neighbor's lawn. I don't want to put the damn thing right in the middle of the yard. Uh, it's it's going to be too big and bulky. I don't have room for more than one kind of tree. I need want to do apples. I need cross-pollination. The problems just go, pfft, fall away. Why? Because you assessed your property in a different manner. Another thing you might look at, we just talked about this recently in a Q&A show. You go to a certain part of your property, you go, this is shaded. This is always going to be shaded. It, it's a low, and it's a low part of the property. It's moist down here. So it's too damp and too shaded to do anything with vegetables. And I can't plant a tree here. It's not going to grow. You know, What am I going to do with this area? Maybe you go out and you build yourself a little set of stands to keep logs off the ground. Go out to some different places where they're you know, cutting wood lots and clearing things for any construction that might still be going on or tree trimmers or anything. And get yourself a bunch of hardwood logs, bring them home, drill holes in them, plug them up with mushroom spawn, and take that shaded area and build yourself a little micro mushroom farm. And once you get a log producing for you, it'll take about a year, but once you get it producing for you, it'll produce for three to four years before that log needs to be recycled. What's left of it that's been broken down could be burned. Uh, or composted or what have you and replaced. So that's plenty of time to keep things running. And now, remember we said about going from consumer to producer? With those two things alone, we go from producing fruit, we go to producing fruit and mushrooms. And have you priced shiitakes or, uh, any of the, the, you know, the gourmet mushrooms that you can grow? You know, oyster mushrooms, things like that. How much those things cost? Now, does it take time to make these things happen? They don't happen overnight. But once that machine starts running for you, what are you producing from those two things that take up almost no space at all? You do that anywhere. But it all starts with assessing what you have. 
Let's talk about gardening for a minute. No matter what I say about how wonderful gardening is, it is physically hard work on some levels, especially at certain times of the year. And it's a challenge, and it has to. there's things that have to be done every year. I still think everybody should have a garden, but maybe you don't need as big a garden as you think you do. Maybe one, two, three beds maximum, and I'm talking like four by eight. Maybe that's all you need. Maybe you need less than that. Maybe one is enough. You know, two four by fours or one four by eight produces a lot of fresh vegetables. Especially if you're growing in the spring and the fall with like salad stuff, right? I mean, in the cooler months where you can grow all those salad greens and things like that, you can have a salad a day out of a garden with, with two beds, no problem for a family, right? Maybe a few pepper plants, a few tomato plants, a few other things. You know, you can have a, you know, a cucumber vine on a trellis, a few beans, and, and a couple beds, you can be eating something from your garden every day. Now, you're not gonna, with that small of a setup, you're not going to produce a lot for storage, for dehydration, and things like that. But there's other avenues. You know, you go to the farmer's market, buy food in bulk at a discount price during the harvest season, dehydrate can, etc., those things. Right? And now you've reduced your outlay. But if you're eating, the main thing about this, if you're eating something off your property 300 days a year, maybe there's a couple months in the winter that without a greenhouse, and if you don't have one, you can't pull it off. But if you're eating something from your property that's either been grown and eaten fresh or grown and stored 300 days a year, 300 days a year you're not buying something that you would have bought. The house is producing for you. The big thing with gardening is, especially with smaller lots, you're probably going to be happier if you live that busy suburban lifestyle to focus more on perennials. Things that come back every year that are more of the tree, bush, vine. And the bushes and the vines are going to be a huge advantage for you in a smaller lot. You know, there's, I think a lot of people look at, let's, let's talk about a few things you can do this with. I don't want to turn this into a, a show where I just go through ten plants or something like that, but just a mile-high overview. Some of the things you can grow that I think a lot of Americans are still out of touch with are kiwis. You can get, let's say, a male kiwi vine and two female kiwi vines, Those can be grown on a trellis, they can be grown on a fence, they can be grown against the side of a house. Um, kiwis are not tropical. Uh, there's varieties of kiwis that are uh, hardy down to 20 below zero, and there's some that are hardy down to right around zero, and there's some that are maybe negative 10. And depending on how hot the area you are in is, the, the, the less you want to go toward the, the Arctic type of kiwi. But kiwis are not tropical. You also might think of kiwis as those little fuzzy potato-looking things in the store. You can grow those if you want to, but the vast majority of kiwis that are available to the home grower are much smaller than that. They kind of look like a really large grape. They have no fuzz, and you don't have to peel them to eat them. You just pop them in your mouth and eat them. Two well-established three-year-old female kiwi vines with one male pollinator will produce on average 200 pounds of fruit for you a year. And they look beautiful as a vine growing along a fence with a trellis for support. Absolutely beautiful. So, you see, now we take an ornamental. It takes up a little bit of space, produce a couple hundred pounds of fruit. Maybe on another fence, we're espalaring some apples and oranges or apples and pears or whatever grows in your area. You can do this with, even with some of the, the nut trees and things like that. Growing some uh, uh, mushrooms down at our little mushroom farm. None of these things take a lot of input. None of them take a lot of effort. There's some, I mean, some of the other things you can look at doing that are pretty easy to pull off and, and really kind of add to your home. Like where someone would come to look to buy your home and go, oh, that's nice. That's, I, I see more value in the home now. 
a nice little trellis or arbor growing grapes. That's a wonderful addition to the home. It's a wonderful source of either food or raw material for making wine or jelly or jam or preserves. Um, and with me, I'm going to turn grapes into wine every chance I get, the ones that don't get eaten anyway by the kid and the wife. But, I mean, these are all these types of things that you can look at that maybe take a year, two, or three to establish. But once established, the, all they need you to, you know, what grapevine needs, you go out in the winter when all the leaves are off your grapevine and you trim it. It is a, if you have, let's say, four or five vines on a, on a trellis, it is a 20-minute job maximum. You know, it could take an hour and a half if you want to be meticulous. But if you just go out there and do what needs to be done, it's a 20-minute job on, on a single trellis. Easy. So even if you, you know, have a, a buyer when you're looking to sell your house later, it says, seems like a lot of work. Nope, here's a little book I put together for you. It tells you what to do, when to do it, 20 minutes a year, and you pick your grapes. Yeah? You, you, think about anything you put in that might create a buyer's objection and put together little documentations for it. So when you go to sell your house, you leave a little book on your, on your, on your table for anybody viewing the house, of how everything works on your property. I learned that from a very, very smart real estate agent named James Wells Schooley, who sold our house in Pennsylvania when we left. She sold our house in seven hours from the time we listed it till it was purchased. She had an open house that never happened. She had to cancel it because she had a full-priced offer. And one of the things she did was put together a book of everything on the property and everything around the property. So it was how far, you know, what school, how far away it is, what the school's ratings were. Closest little store, closest big store, um, how our coal stove worked, where our, where our storage for our coal was. Because we had a thing that looked like a well pump house. It was, actually, it, was, it was cute the way they designed it into the house, but it was actually you opened up the roof and it was full of coal. So, you know, where that was. Basic maintenance for the pool, the maintenance schedule on the pool. So instead of somebody looking at a pool going, I don't know if I can handle a pool, they were able to turn to the little tab that said pool, and they went, Okay, uh, add chlorine, blah, blah, blah. Comes with one year's worth of chemicals. Oh, this is easy. I can, you know, you know, Dad's looking at it going, I could do that. That's not hard. So uh, one of the things you have to think about is when you make these changes to your property that people are not accustomed to seeing, if you ever plan on selling, some buyers may have a hold up there. You need to think about that in advance, make it easy for yourself, make it easy for them, and have a plan uh, in place so that when someone looks at it and goes, Oh, this is beautiful, but I don't know if I can run all this. They can see, oh, I go over here to turn the water on, and that's that. And uh, I'm going to get plums in this month and pears in this month, and I'm, i got mushrooms down there if I want to keep them, or the buyer said he'll be happy to take those logs with him, things like that. So think about those things going forward. One of the biggest things I just touched on that you can do to really automate your life and make your life easier and get really good results is is something I should have done here, but the closer I get to leaving, the less motivated I am to do it, is put in a really good drip irrigation system. Uh, it can be a drip irrigation system. It can be a soaker hose system. I don't really care, but I'm talking about automated irrigation. I don't care if it uses some sprinklers. I don't care what you do. But if you take things to a point where a timer goes off at a certain time of day and most of what needs to get watered gets watered and then the timer shuts it off, your life just got so much easier. And you can, I mean, if you really want to be redundant, if you have a well running on solar power and the timer running on solar power, and that could be a redundant system that wouldn't go down even if the grid failed. I don't know that you need to take it to that level. I think the running, running an irrigation system with that would actually be quite easy. Running a well pump 
is expensive. Uh, a well pump uh, that will run on solar energy uh, and, and enough solar energy to run. A well pump is actually a pretty heavy draw of electricity. Uh, it's quite an investment just to do that one thing. can be done. It's been done all over the world. Um, but to do it, it, it it's, it's not as inexpensive as you might think it would be to do that. But it could be done, I guess, is the one way to look at that. And uh, if you had materials that were being used elsewhere, it could be uh, later salvaged to do that with if you understood the principles behind it. But I think automated irrigation, or at least irrigation distribution. So what is the difference? Well, automated irrigation relies on electricity, and, and the thing does it itself. Um, I've seen people put in big four-way valve system, and uh, but to water their property, instead of having it be electronic, they walk outside, turn the water on. They open valve one. They go back inside for 30 minutes. They come back out, close valve one, open valve two. Nothing wrong with that. It requires you to do it. Uh, I guess it keeps you more involved. Uh, but it's redundant against electricity anyway. You know, as long as you still have water pressure, uh, if you're running a well, obviously don't. But we're in suburbia today, right? So you probably don't have that. And most of the time I've found that even if my power's out, my water's not uh, because they, they run on different systems. Uh, so definitely consider putting in irrigation distribution. It'll really do a lot to improve the value of your property and make your efforts more successful and make you see the garden, the, the trees, the bushes, everything else as a, uh, as a benefit rather than something you have to work on every day. I guess it wouldn't be a homestead show if we didn't talk about livestock. In my view, and there will be people that differ with me, but in my view, the three best livestock to consider for suburban environments are chickens, rabbits, or ducks. And a lot of people will say that, you know, a duck, a duck is kind of a, you know, they need a pond and you don't really have room for a duck in, uh, in a backyard or what have you. But there are some that, you know, as long as you give them a little place to get wet, I mean, this could be a, a kiddie pool that's been kind of dressed up to look a little different. You can put it, here's an idea for you. If, if you kind of want a little place for your ducks to get wet, cheap way to do it, go get you a kiddie pool and build a little frame around that kind of hides what it is. Put a drain in it that can be opened and closed, and uh, they'll use that. You don't need much. In fact, you can actually keep ducks with no water at all. I, I really don't like that idea, but it can be done. But there's uh, there's a breed called uh, the Khaki Campbell, which is kind of a cross with Mallard. And uh, they do great in backyards. They're quiet. They're peaceful. Uh, they're good little animals. They're great at eating insects. I mean, they're, they're wonderful at slugs, snails, and all types of things like that. Um, kind of let them run around the yard as long as it's safe for them to do that. They're not bad about, you know, chickens, you have to control a chicken a lot because of their scratching and the propensity to eat just about anything. Chickens will get into your garden, and if they're not controlled, they'll eat tomatoes, they'll eat peppers, they'll eat anything, especially greens that are coming up and all. Ducks will do some of that, but they're less harsh on it. So ducks are something to consider. Duck eggs are extremely nutritious, extremely rich, and I don't know, I've just found that ducks come without some of the problems that it seems that chickens do. Don't have anything against chickens. They're my, they're my favorite, honestly, of small livestock. I love chickens. I, I don't know why. I, I really don't. A chicken is kind of an ugly bird. Some things about them are beautiful, I think, especially some of the roosters and their colors and different breeds and all. But when you really get down to it, and you look at the head of a chicken, it's kind of warty, and I mean, you know, they they crap everywhere, and they got these scaly feet, and 
you know, if you don't make sure that they're cleaned out all the time, the chicken crap stinks. And but yet, I love the little guys, and I think it's because one, they have they have cool personalities. They're entertaining as all get out, um, and they have a certain family instinct, the way that they stay in their little flock. And one reason or another, I love chickens. Great source of eggs. Good for weeding. Good for producing uh, organic waste. Good for helping you break things down quick for composting. Um, you know, basically anything you would have eaten, but it's kind of past its prime. Uh, you, if it's not made out of meat, you can pass it on to your chickens. Uh, they don't like onions. They don't like citrus peel and things like that. But you know, leftover salad greens that kind of went off a little bit. Anything like that, you can feed to your chickens. And a little flock of you know four to eight hens. You don't even need a rooster. Uh, will produce plenty of eggs for the average household. If you have eight, you'll probably end up with more eggs than you can deal with. Uh, but here's something, that th- and, and we'll talk about one more, and then I want to really kind of point something out you need to think about with uh, all this idea with livestock. Uh, the next one is rabbits, and I think rabbits make the most sense for meat. Uh, they, you know, you can grow a lot of what your rabbits will eat even in a suburban backyard. Uh, you can get a lot of food for rabbits that other people are discarding, uh, such as produce that's a day past its prime from your grocery store. Uh, if you go ask for that, a lot of times a grocer will, will give you that. And uh, you can basically take that and take anything that you think is not acceptable for your rabbits and compost it. And anything you do is acceptable for your rabbits, give it to them. And you'll find a lot of things like romaine lettuce and all that, like, basically the ends have gotten kind of off. And they're not going to sell that for people because nobody's going to buy it. But you cut the ends off and the core of the romaine is still fresh. And, and your, you know, your rabbits will enjoy that uh, a great deal. So you can get a lot of food for your rabbits by growing some of your own and, and getting things from, like, discarded groceries. The other thing you have to do, though, is you are going to have to have some type of pelletized feed. You're probably not going to grow and get enough food like that for your rabbits to be healthy and grow at acceptable levels for meat production. But let's say two does, maybe three does and a buck, uh, can produce a lot of rabbit meat. And it'll take you probably like a half a year to get into the groove with this. And you'll probably lose some babies, and you'll probably have some problems, and you'll probably make some mistakes, but eventually you'll get a system down where, I mean, like Marjorie down in um, in South Texas, their little rabbit operation, they basically produce a rabbit a week for the entire year out of their rabbit operation. It's not very big. It's something that could be in anybody's backyard. Rabbits are quiet. They don't disturb the neighbors. They don't fly away, what have you. And there's a lot of other livestock options. I've seen people keep dwarf goats in suburban environments, pigs. I've seen all kinds of things. Some areas, of course, have variances and zoning restrictions that don't allow this. Rabbits are one you can almost always get away with. That's why I'm such a big fan of them. They produce a crap ton of manure, pardon the pun there. Uh, but it's excellent manure. It can be used for fertilizer right away. It's not hot manure like chicken manure. So it's a great one to consider. But here's the thing that I was alluding to kind of in the middle here. It is important to understand that your responsibilities and your ties to your home Go up when you add livestock. If you have a dog or two and you want to go on vacation, you can take them to, and you can't take the dogs with you, you can hire a pet sitter, easy to do, open the yellow pages. You can find a, uh, a dog kennel and board them, and they can be you know, taken care of wonderfully. Dogs have options today that are better than a hotel for people. They cost as much, but, you know, if that's what you want. Most dogs, it's a typical kennel, well taken care of, taken out to play a couple times a day and fed and, few bucks, you know, 20 bucks a day or whatever, and your dog's taken care of. 
If you have a rabbit operation or a coop full of chickens or whatever, and you want to take a one-week vacation, you have to find somebody that you can trust that can take care of your animals. All of a sudden, you're much more tied to your property, and it's not quite the utopia it is in the mind of some would-be suburban homesteaders. I'm not saying that it's not something you should do. I'm simply saying it's something you need to be fully understanding of the consequences uh, that you're bringing down upon yourself when you do something like bring animals in. Because let's face it, if we do automated irrigation, and that's on an electronic timer, then other than picking the surplus food, I can go away for two weeks and come back and my garden is fine. All of my bushes, my trees, my vines, everything else, fine. i got to come back and cut some long grass wherever I didn't kill the grass. But otherwise, it's okay. Even if I don't have automated irrigation, I could probably get the neighbor kid or the old man down the road or whatever and spot them $5 a day or something like that and say, hey, would you come over once a day and water my plants for me? And most people are comfortable with and capable of watering plants. Start trying to find someone to look after your coop of six hens, right, and your little, your little, uh, your little flock of four ducks. And people either don't want to, aren't comfortable with it, don't know how, are afraid that they're going to make a mistake. There's, there's all kinds of things that pop up that it's not the same as keeping an eye on my cat, right? Because people are comfortable with cats. Or, hey, come water my tree for me. There's, it, it does tie you to the land. That's not completely a bad thing, but it does need to be understood. Another option that you have that is really ideal for the suburban urban area is either hydroponics or aquaponics. And I prefer aquaponics because it does more with less. And what I mean by that is hydroponics is basically growing plants where they're just sitting in a growing medium and using water and you add chemicals and fertilizers uh, that you control the amounts of to the water to keep your hydroponic system going. And I'll leave it at that. Because everything else is the same with aquaponics, except I don't have to add all that stuff because I have fish. And the fish produce waste in the water. The waste is seen, is, is, instead of being waste and having to be removed, is now made available to my plants that filter the water. So I'm producing in the same relative amount of space fish and plants with less input because the fish are providing for the plants. I can even put aside one tank and grow things like duckweed in that tank and then use that duckweed to feed a fish that eats duckweed like tilapia. And I can't maybe produce enough duckweed to feed my top tilapia year-round, but all of a sudden I'm producing some of what my fish consume using the same system my fish are using. I'm going closer and closer to a closed-loop system. The closer I, And closed-loop means the system provides completely for itself. I can take some surplus... And it's still okay, I don't destroy the balance. The amount of input I have to put in is completely minimized. The only thing I would have to put in in a purely closed-loop aquaponics system is as I harvest the fish more fish. And I could take tilapia, one pair, into a breeding tank, a fish aquarium like in the house, right? And I could breed my own fry. And with that, I have a fully closed-loop system. It can be done, but you'd have to dedicate an awful lot to growing food for the fish. That's, that's the downside of it. So here's the, the logical engineering question. If I created a closed-loop system like that, the fish are providing waste for the plants for a nutrient purpose. The plants are providing food for the fish. Where's the energy surplus to keep this thing going come from? 
it's a, a very important answer, and it's something most people never consider. It's solar energy. Every form of energy on this planet is solar energy. Oil is solar energy. I know that doesn't make sense. I'm going to make it make sense for you. Oil comes from what? Little crustaceans and animals and sea life and all kinds of stuff that died, formed a great big pile of death, was put under tremendous pressure over years and years and years, changed from one organic state, decomposing life into another organic state, oil, and then we pull that oil up and we burn it. Where's the energy in the oil from? It's originally from the life and the plankton and the protoplankton that was either photosynthetic or consumed photosynthetic organisms, created a store of energy that was transformed into oil. All that energy in our oil came from the sun. So I mean, if it bothers you, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. All energy is carbon neutral because all energy took carbon from the atmosphere and we're simply putting it back where it came from. I, I mean, I'm not saying it's good to burn all our oil. I'm not, I'm not saying that. You guys know better than that. I'm just saying it's a, you have to start understanding that because all of a sudden, if you understand that all energy is solar in nature, you understand how important it is that we're able to, you know, we don't have things cloud our atmosphere up and things like that. I'm not talking about global warming. I'm talking about standard everyday old pollution. And you start seeing energy patterns differently. Well, what about wind energy, Jack? Take away the sun. Take away the sun. Let all the temperatures on the planet stabilize to a single temperature, and we don't have wind. We have still air everywhere. The only reason air flows is because there's two temperatures. Every source of energy is solar. When you eat corn, it's solar energy going into your body. When you shoot a deer and cut its meat and eat it, it's solar energy going into your body. Sun grows vegetation. Deer absorbs the, the energy in the vegetation created by solar radiation and photosynthesis. You are solar powered as a being. Kind of cool, isn't it? Important to think about when you're homesteading. Because it's all about the sun. Too much of a good thing kills. Too little of a good thing and you cannot thrive. Which means that the greenhouse is our friend in suburban United States. Most states in this country are in a place where sooner or later, every year, temperatures go below freezing. And when that happens, the fact that I'm in Texas and have a long growing season, and you're in Illinois and have a shorter growing season, is immediately equalized the day that I go below zero Celsius, right? 32 Fahrenheit. Because my plants die just like, now my plants might make it three months longer than yours. But we're still both dead in the water at that point, and everything we had is gone. So if we want to produce anything, we need to create a microclimate for ourselves. No better way to do that than a greenhouse. And something like a little 8x12 greenhouse, even a 6x8 greenhouse, you'd be amazed how much you can grow in there. Even a lot of things that I could grow in my garden do better in a greenhouse. Spinaches, lettuces, and things like that. In the coldest parts of the year, you get a growth rate about four times by being in a greenhouse as not being in a greenhouse, even though the plant will live it totally acceptably without a greenhouse. I did a YouTube video series where I demonstrated this. I planted two patches of lettuce, four different varieties, right out in the same uh, garden bed. They were watered with the same frequency. 
They sat out, and this was January, February, coldest part of the year here in Texas, plenty of days with snow. We had 11 inches of snow in one day last year, by the way, in Dallas, Texas, folks. Um, we had probably three or four days where we got some snow, lots of frost, lots of freezing overnight, warm days. You know, I'm not going to lie to you, man. It's pretty nice here in February. Uh, some days where, you know, a storm comes in or whatever, it's cold. But, I mean, we have a lot of days in February where the overnight low might be 24. But, you know, midday, it's sunny and it's like, I know some of you guys are going to be mad at this, like 55 degrees. And it's just, and you guys are freezing your asses off up north. But, in that same environment, I put a big fish tank over one patch of lettuce. And I put nothing over the other patch of lettuce. Everything was the same. And the ones that I had the greenhouse, little mini greenhouse created around, grew probably four times as fast and lush. And we were cutting it, <clears throat> and it was still growing back. And the stuff that we didn't cover never really even caught up with it, even without cutting it, until the warmer you know, days of March came around. The one thing we did have to do was vent that uh, on the days where the sun was really intense, or actually go out and remove it during the middle of the day uh, for maybe an hour or two and then put it back on when the sun was at you know, the place where it was hitting it most directly. But a greenhouse is your friend in suburbia, folks. Even, like I said, even a little one. It extends the growing season. You can open it up and completely vent it and coat it with maybe, let's say, 50%, what they call 50% or 60% shade cloth. And you can do some shade growing and create a cooler environment in the summer with it. Or it can simply be a place you store things during your summer period. But it really is a great way. And if you're going to do um, aquaponics or hydroponics, it really is kind of a, a great idea to marry that to a greenhouse system. The two together are more powerful than either one is independently from the other one. I touched on this already, but as I'm getting ready to uh, to wrap up today, I want to always tell you that when you do anything to a property, you have to think about the fact that you're going to sell it someday uh, unless you plan on dying there. And if you plan on dying there, do whatever you like. But if you if you there's any chance that you're going to sell this property, that's not going to be the place that you stay until you know they they put you in the ground. Then you have to think about being a seller someday, and doing simple things like I said, like documenting the how of all your systems and simplifying it. First of all, doing this will make you think about how to make it more simple. When we put ourselves into a, a challenge, we do things we normally wouldn't do. We're like, ah, I'll go out there and water that every day. But if I figure out how not to, and I say, hey, I might have to sell, all of a sudden I realize, hey, now I can do more with my time. I can build more here. I can accomplish more. I can produce more. So it's good for us, but it's also good when we come time to sell. I'll be honest with you. There are things that you'll do that some buyers will look at, and they won't like it. Some buyers don't like a pool, so you're not going to put a pool in. Some buyers don't like tile floor. They like carpet, so you're not going to put tile in. Some buyers hate carpet, so you're not going to put carpet. You see, there's real estate agents, to me, drive me nuts. Because they'll come into a house, and they'll tell you all the reasons it's going to be hard to sell the house. Instead of seeing those things as advantages and looking for the person that wants them. Oh, you got a garden. Uh, a lot of people don't like gardens. Well, millions of Americans do. Maybe we should advertise that there's a garden. But then some buyers will be turned off. But some buyers will be turned on. Most real estate agents don't know how to market worth their ass. They really don't. I, like I said, this Jane Schooley up in, uh, in, the, uh, in the Allentown, Pennsylvania area is the only one I've met that I would actually consider an effective marketer. The rest of them are just following a system. Take pictures and put it out in the listing and hope somebody wants to see it. Run a few open houses. Here's what Jane Schooley told me about open houses. She said, we'll do one for you. Because I think this house has so much going for it that if I can get people here together, 
I can get a bid war going on, and I can get you more than your full price. But I'm only doing that because of the way this house will present, and its price point and the market right now. Normally, I don't do them, and I asked her, well, why? She said, because most open houses are not for you. They're for the real estate agent. If I'm a real estate agent, I run an open house. I get all these people to come in, many who do not have an agent yet. I get to meet them. I get to hand them my card. I get to follow up with them. Next thing you know, I have an agreement set up with them. And now I have a whole bunch more people that I'm either I'm looking to buy a house for. And I don't care if they buy your house. I just care that they buy a house because I'm looking to turn into their buyer's broker. And that's what most open houses are really all about. And I appreciated her honesty so much for that. And she goes, you still want me to do it? I said, you do everything you need to do because you're honest with me. But there's some fundamental realities about real estate agents and how hard they're going to work for you. You need to do some of the work for them. And that means that you think about increasing your property value with all of the things that you do. Not just for you personally. There's things that you might personally love. But you need to think about how to do them in a way that makes them easy for other people to maintain and easy for you to remove if they are not wanted. So the person comes in and goes, I really don't like that garden spot. We'll, we'll yank it out before we leave if you're that. Throw down grass seed. If that's what you want, that's easy. We'll do it. Just overcome the objection quickly. You know, It'll be done before we close if that's important to you. Because many times buyers are saying crap like that just to negotiate the price. And most real estate agents don't have the stones to go into that with you. They just don't. Um, I have to be fair. I found some good real estate agents. There's a girl named Debbie that helped her find her place in, uh, in Arkansas. And I was so... So latched on to pricing from the Northeast still that, you know, she said, we can make an offer 10% under the asking price, and this guy's going to take it like that. And I'm like, really? I said, she goes, yeah, no problem. Because the place hadn't been listed very long. And uh, she goes, let's go 15 under, see what happens. And we went 15% under the asking price, and they took it. So there are some agents that are strong like that. And if you're a real estate agent, I don't want to put you down. But you know the type of agent I'm talking about. And, folks, if you, when you do go to sell, especially when you've done some homesteading activities, interview three or four agents. Don't sign any agreement with any agent before you talk to three or four of them. And get a feeling for someone that's going to work hard to market your house for you. Ask them what they do to market other houses. Tell them, show me a couple houses you have listed right now. I'd like to see what you're doing for these people other than throwing them in, in multiple listing service. Because, frankly, I can do that for myself, you know, for 1.5% versus 3 to 6 that you want. So just a little real estate tip there at the end when you're doing all these things. The big thing I want to wrap up today, though, with it's probably the most important part of the show, which is why I saved it for the end, is for you to understand the advantages that you have as an urban or a suburban homesteader. Uh, I think that most of the time what we do is we focus on our disadvantages. I don't have enough land. I don't have enough space. There's too many people here. And let me tell you, folks. I feel your pain. I say those things all the time. I am a person who both loves and hates people. I know that sounds weird. What I mean, though, is I love people in general. I love sitting with two or three people I've never met before, and I love hearing about their lives and the things that they're doing and the things we have in common and the things that's different and the things that they can teach me and the things I can teach them. And I love people in the fact that I talk to a huge group of people every day on this show and I hear back from them and I know that, at least for some, I'm impacting their lives in a positive way. And when I get an email that says, Hey, Jack, you helped us and this is what we're doing now, I cannot tell you how... how how amazing that feels to hear that. 
I had a comment on one of my other sites last night that basically was this guy said, since I found this site, here's the things that I've done. And this is the business building site, jacksbeargo.com. And I, and I put a ton of work into that site. And it's not a commercial venture at all. And um, I said to him, that one comment has made every ounce of work that goes into this worthwhile. So I love people. And I have an amazing faith in overall humanity. Because if we lose that, what do we have, folks? All we have is people. You know, all we have is each other. But I hate crowds. And I hate crowds of people. And I despise disorganized, ass clownery crowds of people. When I am in a mall or a shopping center or something like that, and there's people that just, you know, they just stop in the middle of an aisle to tie a shoe or, you know, they just have no idea where they're going and they're clueless and they're zigzagging and you can't get around them. Uh, or I'm in a place where kind of people are pressed against you. I hate that. I pull my car out of my driveway and I drive down my little road and it's kind of quiet. And as soon as I get out on the main road, there's freaking people everywhere. It doesn't matter if it's the middle of the day on a Wednesday. And I'm like, it's 2 o'clock on a Wednesday. Not everybody's a podcaster and sales. Where do these people come from? Don't they have jobs? What are they doing here? So I understand. And we tend to focus on the crowds and the restrictions and the small land instead of our advantages. And there's some real advantages to be in, in these environments. One is because the land is small, it is possible for you to intensely manage every square foot of your property. If you own even two acres, that ain't going to happen. You ain't going to do that on an acre. On a tenth to a quarter of an acre, you can basically know every square foot of your property, what it is, what its purpose is, and see to it that it gets the things that it needs. That's a tremendous advantage. You have access to low-cost resources all around you, and if you produce something, you have access to places to sell them. That little mushroom farm that I talked about, if you live in a sizable town with a bunch of little restaurants and boutique diners and stuff, I bet you you can find somebody to buy shiitake mushrooms for 50% of what they're paying a wholesaler for. And I bet you you can make a lot of money. And I don't mean enough money to retire, but I mean if you measure the money per hour worked, And if there's any concerns about the way you're doing things and is it clean and hygienic and whatever, since you're local to the area, you bring the head chef to your backyard and say, there it is, this is how I do what I do. And we can sell you one pound or ten pounds. We can adjust our production based on your seasonal needs. And it's locally grown and you can advertise that. Hard to do when you're out in the middle of nowhere. Not saying that you'd want to. I'm just saying you have to look for your advantages. Same thing with if you put a small aquaponics operation, and you probably sell a lot of fish. Locally grown fish is part of a special. Maybe not a restaurant that wants it all the time because you can't keep up with that. But a seasonal dump of your surplus. There's a lot of things you can do when you're in suburban environments. If you can reach out and form community with your neighbors, then it's possible for you to be growing apples, your neighbor to be growing peaches, and for you to be doing an exchange, and your other neighbors growing figs. And you can start to build an entire community based on barter, sharing, and exchange. Certainly something you can do out in the country, but nowhere near as quickly and efficiently with the proximity. So it's important that we really start to understand that we're not at some of the disadvantages that we think we are when we're in suburban and urban areas. There's some amazing things that have been done by people all over the country with you know small lots. And some of the pictures you guys have sent me and shown me and what you've been able to do, you know, if you look at what Kohut's done with his yard with gardening and permaculture on our forum, absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. 
in spite of the fact that he was wrong about wood chips. I just said that to dig him because I know him personally and I like him, right? But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not something that's that hard. It's not something that's that complicated. And it, in a way, it's much easier to do on a quarter acre than on 25 or 50. It really is because you don't get overwhelmed by the land. And if you'll take that walk that I talked about in the beginning, that walk where you stand on every square foot of your little lot, and maybe it takes you, maybe you've walked your whole property before in 30 seconds. You can literally do a lap around your house in half a minute, right? Maybe a minute, you know, easy, right? If you take an hour to do it, it's only one hour. You'll change what you see. When you look out your window from now and you'll see something different, you'll know that spot over there, whatever. If you'll do that and you'll marry that to your advantages, all of a sudden you realize that you can make a homestead anywhere. And you can turn that house from consumer to producer. And God, folks, we need Americans to do that. We'd be so much stronger as a people and so much stronger as a nation if we would take our homes and turn them into producers. If we would see them as a shelter from the storm versus an expense that's required by society. Because that's what's happened to most Americans, and I don't like it. Now, some of you will say there's some disadvantages to the city. You're not wrong. And some will say, well, if the shit hits the fan, there's really some disadvantages. There'll be rioting and stealing and looting and things like that first. You may have to get out. If you hunker down, you may really have to hunker down. It may be necessary to form alliances and all types of other things. And you're right. And we'll save that for tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll talk about prepping for disaster in the urban areas. Today, let's just leave it with something positive. What can you do to turn that home of yours into a homestead? What can you do to turn that home of yours from consumer and producer? And one last thing, don't forget basic simple things like improving your energy efficiency with insulation and, and you know higher efficient light bulbs and making sure things are turned off when they're not being used. That is one of the that's probably that is the biggest expense outside of uh, housing and taxes is energy use. So conserve that energy use as well. Do that and build something productive no matter where you are. You'll be on your way to living that better life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life. Time for you to, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for